Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Welcome again to Kishwaukee Bible Church. My name is Jesse. I'm the pastor here, and we're picking up today in that series on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that we've been in, that we've been calling Rebuild. As we've been watching God do just that. From his people's identity to his people's worship, from their joy to their confidence, fixing what's broken like only he can. And which we're going to see him do today, again, as he rebuilds their conviction. Now, I know your, your bulletin says faithfulness, but we're going to shift that, right? And this is your chance to get engaged. Karen Harrelson was saying that when she has students and she's changed what she's written on the paper because, because she got the email in too late to, to Sandy to change it for her, that this is just a time that you get to engage. So, so you get to take your pen out and just cross out faithfulness and, and write in conviction, and then you can spend the rest of today thinking about where I was going when I chose faithfulness for the title. But today, at least for what I'm going to cover, we're going to look at how God rebuilds his people's conviction, which is an interesting word, right? Conviction. Because it could refer either to a judgment made against you or to a judgment you've made for yourself. It could refer to either a, a conviction regarding something you didn't do, should have done, or a, a conviction regarding something you've determined to do. Conviction cuts both ways. And today we're going to see God rebuild his conviction, in his people's conviction, in both those senses as we turn our attention to the last two chapters of the book of Ezra. To Ezra chapters 9 and 10. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there, again, to Ezra's chapters 9 and 10, where I want to begin by reading, like we've done the last couple of weeks, the opening verses of the first chapter, chapter 9. And you can follow along with me as I do that again, as I read from Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. This is God's word. It says this. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land. From the peoples of the land with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, Ezra says, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel 
because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, oh my God, I am ashamed and I blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. On that positive note, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we uh, consider today what it means to be convicted, to have conviction run through us in our heads and hearts and hands, I pray that at as with your people so long ago, that you would give us the grace to stare our shortcomings in the face, to acknowledge them in our heads, to grieve them in our hearts, and to take up arms against them with our hands for the glory of your son Jesus who did it on our behalf. In whose name I pray, amen. The Reverend John Newton was by all accounts, no matter where you look, a man of conviction. He was a man of conviction, a man who, who spent 43 years as an Anglican minister, another seven before that as a self-taught evangelical lay leader, a man who dedicated the greater portion of his life to, to helping the poor, pastoring the downhearted, speaking into the lives of some of England's most influential leaders, and playing a pivotal role alongside his young friend William Wilberforce, playing a pivotal role in the abolition of the slave trade. John Newton was, by all accounts, a man of conviction, of deep principles, of determination, of resolve to do God's work after him. But if you know anything about Newton's story, the man who penned the words, the most famous hymn ever written. If you know anything about Newton's story, you know it's a story about amazing grace. That it's a story of a man who, who first was convicted about all he'd done against God before the conviction grew in him of all he would do for God. And what I want to suggest to you today is that not only from Newton's story, but, but from this passage we're going to look at today, this passage, that this is precisely the way conviction is meant to work. That it's meant to start as a conviction of all we've done against God and grow into then a conviction of all we can do for God. 
that this is the direction it goes. And there's a pivotal piece in the middle. That it starts again as a conviction about all we've done against God and then grows into a conviction of all we can do for God with one pivotal piece in the middle. And that's what we're going to look at today as we look at how conviction starts in the head. Conviction about all we've done against God starts in the head, moves to the heart, and ends in the hands of all that we can do for God. Again, how it starts in the head, right? What we've done against God, how it moves to the heart and ends in the hands of all we can do for God. First, let's look at where conviction starts in the head. And here, I'm I'm talking almost entirely of that, again, conviction about what we've done against God. That this is a, a head issue. It's a, it, it's a, it's a brain issue. It's a, it's, a, it's a mental issue, a cognitive issue. And it starts in the head as a matter of fact. Which is exactly what we see in these opening verses of chapter 9 where Ezra says, After these things had been done, after he had showed up and delivered the king's commissions, if you remember last week, after he, he delivered those king's commissions and had spent some four months teaching God's word. He says, after these things, the officials approached me and said, he's preaching the word, the officials show up and say, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. Specifically, and he names these peoples from the the, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. I'm just saying those because I'm letting you know this week I practiced them. <laughs> they have not separated themselves from these people. For God's people, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons. We find out later they also gave their daughters away to marry the sons of the people of the land. But really the concern is who stayed in the land, not the ones you sent off. So we we brought in their daughters to be wives for for themselves, they say, and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And get this, they say, "In in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. But notice, they're convicted in the head. They're convicted in their heads. This is a, this is a, this is a brain thing. This is a, a mental thing. This is a cognitive thing that they've been made aware of. How? By the preaching of God's word. Through the renewal of their minds. This is how it works, right? The man of God shows up, preaches the word of God, and four months later... The people of God catch up. It's a a head thing. Let me just explain what's going on a little bit. Well, Ezra, a man of God who's committed himself to teaching God's word again, has returned to God's land and started doing just that, right? He shows up, that's what he does. Putting his hand to the plow, day in and day out, opening up the scriptures. And four months into this, something finally clicks. 
when God's people sitting under God's word finally came to that uncomfortable realization that who they were was not who they were supposed to be. Because they were meant to be holy, set apart, separated. But instead, they had snuggled up to the very nations that they were supposed to be set apart from. That rather than separate themselves, they had instead taken some of the daughters of the land, verse 2, to be wives for themselves and for their sons. But you might wonder to yourself, what's, the, what's really the big deal, right? What's really the big deal? That's not a big thing in our day and age, right? It shouldn't be. I don't think so. After all, it's, it's not like they were murdering them. They were just marrying them. That's a good thing, right? Marriage is a good thing. How bad could that be? Until you realize that marriage is not only a, a commitment to an individual, but to the gods that individual serves. And, and a commitment to serve those gods yourself, right? Whether they're gods of the traditional sort, like Allah or, or Krishna, or gods of a more modern sort, like when people begin to serve their work or serve their sex life, serve their image. Everything becomes about taking the next selfie. You get married to that, you're marrying into the, the, the selfie process. You know, the God of Facebook. You've got to think about that before you do so. This is really the point here, isn't it? Not so much that God's people had run after other individuals who weren't like them how this text is often used but that in doing so they had inadvertently or advertently run after gods that weren't like him because it's it's not just the the people of the lands and in their abominations which is was just a fancy word for false gods and and the practices that go with them Red, yellow, black, and white. What matters today and, and mattered back then wasn't the choices you couldn't make, whether of the, the color of your skin or of the country you were born in, but what mattered was the one choice you could make, the choice of what God you were going to serve. We've already seen that in this very story, this very book, when, when back in the time of Zerubbabel, we've already seen that that was the issue on the table, right? When, when God's people refused to labor with those who, who served him as one among many gods, you remember? But then, just a, a, a chapter later, you got to keep it in mind, a chapter or two later, they were celebrating, those same people were celebrating their most sacred meal, the Passover, with everyone. It says, everyone who joined them, it says, and separated themselves from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord. This isn't about where you were born. This isn't about the color of your skin. This is about the God you serve. But snuggling up to the nations they were supposed to be set apart from meant that God's people now had lost their voice among those very same nations they were supposed to be set apart for. You can't invite them into something you've already gotten out of. 
to worship the one true and living God. Here, notice, it's the word of God that convicts them. Which is why when they rattle off this list of nations, just notice that. It's this archaic list that sounds a lot like Moses. You notice that? I mean, this, you want me to repeat it again just to... Did you notice? No, nobody talked like this in their day. Nobody talked like this. This is a list that they picked up from Ezra's reading of the Pentateuch, of the Torah, of the books of Moses. Because the word of God has had its way with the people of God. And yet, again, their conviction at this point has only made it to their heads. It's about facts, right? Why do I say that? For one, because they, they, they do not seem to be affected at this point in any way beyond the cognitive. You see it? We have done something wrong. We got the clue. But they're just stating facts. This is, this is what we're hearing in the word. This is what we're seeing in the world. Something's not right. Doesn't add up. For another, though, as much as they're identifying the problem of those around them, they're failing to recognize their own part in it. Remember, this is the officials, right? That's what Ezra says, the officials show up to me, right? What do they say at the end? And it's the officials. It's the same word. It's them. And the officials are foremost in it. They're failing to see that the third person is supposed to translate into a first person now. This is the first person problem. But at this point, it's all facts. To get from the head to the heart, they, they need, in this instance at least, Ezra to sort of lead them into that, to show them what it should look like if this is going to become a conviction of the heart. So if we were doing this ourselves, we'd invite Amber up. She could act this out for us because she can do this, right? Show us what it looks like to, to have this hit the heart more than just the head, right? But let's, let's look at Ezra, right? It's in Ezra that we see this conviction reach the heart. It doesn't take long, right? For he says in verse 3, As soon as I heard this, what? I tore my garment, I tore my cloak, I pulled my hair from my head, I pulled my hair from my beard, and I sat appalled. I tore my garment and my cloak. So that, why? So that the physical rending of my clothes would match the more significant rending of a relationship that I have now with God. Because that's what happens with sin, right? Rips it apart. Which maybe suggests that we do ourselves a little bit of a disservice if we, we get caught up, right? A night on the town, right? And we put on our best and we come to, we come to church. Maybe a disservice, right? When we start to sear our consciences by putting on our best face when most of the time we know that that's not really our real face right this is how Ezra actually he tears his clothes and he pulls hair from his head and from his beard I plucked a nose hair yesterday this guy grabs his head he has now a bald spot. His chin is bare on one awkward side of his face. Why? Because he's so overcome because of the affront to God. 
When's the last time you pulled your hair out? And was it over this? Now, maybe you don't. Maybe you're one of those people who don't touch your hair, right? You don't touch your hair. Your hair is perfect. Leave it the way it is, right? Many of us do, though. We do pull out our hair. Moms, you do. You spend the whole week, and then you spend Sunday morning trying to comb it over in the right spot so that nobody knows, right? This is what we do. But why? Because of an affront to God? No, because of an affront to ourselves. Because our dang kids will not sit still and eat their Cheerios over the bowl. Because, because they will not stay in bed when you have one moment of peace. This is why we pull out our hair. Or we do it because somebody's trying to point something out in our own life. Look at all the emotion. We're going to get to more of it with Ezra. Look at all the emotion. Why is it we are most emotional when somebody is attacking us? When we perceive that they are, that they are digging in and holding us accountable to something? Why is it when, when, when somebody theoretically has our best interest in mind that we would grow to be better than we are? Thank God Jesus loves us where we are. But, but when, when through the body God is doing the work of growing us beyond that, why is it then that we are most emotional? Not when we have done what we shouldn't do against God. This is it for Ezra, pulling his hair out and his beard. You take time to grow a beard, you know what that means. Tears his clothes, he pulls his hair out and he sits appalled. At which point he's joined by all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel. Trembled as an indication that they're moving. They're, they've moved to their hearts as well, this conviction. And it, and it says he sat there until the evening sacrifice. At which point he says in verse 5 that he rose from his fasting only to, to fall down in prayer, right? That's interesting. He rises from fasting to fall down in prayer, a prayer that he recounts beginning in verse 6. And here's the real window into his soul, okay? Because this is what uh, conviction of the heart, when, it, when it, it comes out, right, from the inside out, it's reflected in our actions. This is really the window into the soul, right? When we start praying, what comes out? And here I just want to draw your attention to the fact that Ezra is grieved not just because of, not just because of what his fellow Israelites had done, in turning their backs on God. But if you read through this prayer, it's because they had done it after God had turned to them in grace. It's one thing to turn away from God. It's one thing to run in the other direction. It's another thing to do it after God has extended to you his grace. And look at this prayer of Ezra's, which is what he says, right, all through this. He says in verse 6, oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to, to lift my face to you. 
When's the last time you blushed before God? I am ashamed. This isn't even his stuff. But he so identifies with his people. I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. Why? For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted to the heavens. But, but this isn't the first time, right? This isn't the first time that they mounted. No, he goes on to recount how this guilt is only towering up the insult upon the, the previous injury. For he says in verse 7, From the days of our fathers to this day, we, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, he says, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, he says, favor or grace has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes this is god's intention to brighten his people's eyes to grant us a little reviving in our slavery for we are slaves he says verse 9 yet our god has not forsaken us in our slavery but he has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. God's given us grace when all we deserve was slavery, when all we deserve was to be left in our guilt like a mouse in the trap. If all we deserve was to be left like a child with his hand stuck in the cookie jar. Like a, like a swiper no swiping when he's caught red-handed. How many know what I mean? Or for those who don't know what I mean. For those who, who spend all the money on a MacBook only to find out on the other side of it that you can't find anybody to repair it for a decent price. That you are caught and exactly, you get exactly what you deserve. Yet, God has given us his grace. But now, Ezra says in verse 10, this side of grace, what shall we say after this? What shall we say? We've made a mockery of grace. Because Ezra goes on to recount that even in the face of grace, he and his people have spit in the face of the one giving it. What shall we do? What shall we say? And notice that rather than make presumptions of grace or assume grace, notice that it's in the face of grace that Ezra is most convicted in his heart. Just notice this, and specifically convicted of his and his people's ongoing sin. Such that we might even say today, this side of God's greatest grace, as, as, much, as, as much as the greatness of that grace allows us in some sense to, to make presumptions, like the, the fact that it will never run out. Still, we might say even today that, that if the conviction of your head 
does not result in the present conviction of your heart, in a, in a present awareness of your sins and a disdain for your own sins and a willingness to bear that openly, it's doubtful that you know the one before whom you are convicted. But this has to move, and it moves because of that pivotal issue of grace itself. That it ought to become a hard issue because from the first time our foreparents got kicked out of the garden for which they were made, God's been running after them in grace and we kept running. conviction that begins in the head when the word of God comes to bear on the people of God but it moves quickly to the heart and thirdly ends in the hands it ends in the hands which is what we find as we turn to chapter 10 and Ezra praying and making confession weeping and casting himself down before the house of God when he is joined by a very great assembly it says of men and women of Children even gathered to him out of Israel for the people wept bitterly. When the conviction of his heart is not only Ezra's, but, but now it's shared by those around him. And this guy, Shechaniah, mentioned in verse 2, the, the son of Jehiel, this, of the sons of Elam, addresses Ezra saying, we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God. You see grasping. I, I, I don't, this, is, this is kind of confused or at least raised a debate among those who've looked at this passage more carefully. What's going on here, Right? Is this, is this genuine? Is this like Ezra needed the advice, needed to be told? There is still hope. Or is something going on? It feels like grasping to me, right? There is still hope. Let us, I mean, especially because of what he says next, right? Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God. Yeah, those have worked in the past. Let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. Let's, let's do now what we should have done then. Let's do it now. Hands, right? We're going to do. We're going to do, do, do. Let's do now what we should have done then. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, he says to Ezra, verse 4, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong. Don't give up on us. Do it. And Ezra arose, it says, made the leading priests and the Levites, he didn't have anywhere else to go with this, all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. So they took the oath. It's a conviction that finally ends, whatever you make of it, it ends in the hands. It ends with them doing something about it. They're not going to sit on it, but are going to act on it and are going to do it now. And the rest of this chapter, and I'm going to leave it for you to, to, to push into it and read on your own and, and ask what it has to do with faithfulness. 
The rest of this chapter just tells that story. How the people gather together. They give them three days. Ezra goes off, weeps for the night. They give him three days. He says, you ain't here. I'm in exacting that, that right that I have under, under the king to, 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 to depossess you of your part in this land, your part in this people. You're going to be kicked out. Tells the story then of, of how all Israel came three days later. They showed up. They didn't want to be kicked out. They showed up, and, and Ezra says, this is what we're going to do. This is, what, this is the, the word of God at work on the people of God. This is, this is the best we have. You're going to get rid of your foreign wives. Send them back to their families. Uh, you're going you're to release them back to their pagan lifestyle. Follow the God that they're following anyway. That, that, that we are going to be the people of God, safeguarded to be the people of God. And the people are like, wow, that's huge, all right, we'll do it, but it's going to happen now. It starts to rain. They say, we're already shivering in the rain. You could read that there. It's too much for us. We're trembling because of God himself. Now we're trembling because of the rain. This is, this is crazy. We can't do it today. It's too big of a problem. We've sinned too much. We've got to spread this out a little bit. Call the officials. Let them do it. We'll come in turn, and you can sort out who's going to go. And really in that, you're seeing that this wasn't a wholesale thing. There, there were some women who, by the grace of God, brought into the fold, actually turned to serve the living God alone. They did that. That was not, this wasn't a one-way street. God was working in people's hearts as well. And yeah, there was a whole list of people who were still serving other gods that had gotten into the middle of their marriages, that they'd gotten into the middle of their raising of their kids. And, and this was the plan. This was the plan. A hand thing. Because this is natural. This is the way it works. The word of God convicts in the head. It's driven down to a conviction of the heart. And it ultimately ends up in somebody having to do something about it. But let me suggest that the hands that would ultimately take care of what we did worst against God were not the hands who originally did the sinning. That before it gets to what we do for God, the ending of this book here, the ending that we'll see in chapter 13 of Nehemiah after it, looks forward to God doing what only God can. When he would send his son to stretch out his own hands because we can't do it for ourselves. It takes the conviction of the head and it answers the conviction of the heart and then makes possible for us to live as those with a conviction of our hands. Not because we take care of it. Because we're at a loss to do that on our own. But because Jesus steps in and does it for us. And with that, let me leave you with three thoughts on just your own life of conviction and where you are, because this is supposed to progress, right? This is supposed to progress. And maybe you're stuck 
with merely a conviction of the head. Maybe you're not even there yet. Let me encourage you. Go to the Word. That's a pretty cliche kind of application, though, right? Go to the Word. Let me encourage you further than that. Go to the Word, yes. Put yourself before the Word, yes. Try to, try, to, try to live under the Word, yes. But more than that, let me encourage you, this is what this body is for. This is what this body is for, even if it's when we get most emotional. That we are supposed to be a people speaking the Word over one another. Right? God forbid that we forget what the Word of God is about. God forbid that us as a community end up where that community was. Where they didn't know what the Word said. And it had to click finally what it was about. This is what we're supposed to be centered on. Speaking the Word into each other's lives. Calling each other to account. Growing each other up as instruments of God's grace. And so, go to the Word, but go to the people of God's Word. Place yourself in community. That's why we're, it's not nothing why we, everything we do is about this. Have you noticed it? This is why we do this in home groups. This is why we do this in women's Bible study. This is why we do this in men's Bible study. This is why we encourage you to do it one-on-one. It's because this is who we are. We are the people of God speaking the word of God into one another to see how far we've fallen short. It clicks. So, if you're not there yet or if you're on your way, hope that conviction of the heart of the head is something cultivated in your own life but i hope it doesn't stop there i pray that that it would move then to a conviction of the heart i pray i know we're not all like this we are not all emotional beings we are all not amber i get that but we can have a little more amber in our lives and we ought to if you stare at the, the history of God's grace and recognize that you are still wandering. It ought to devastate you. It ought to. You ought not lose that. That is a good thing. I pray like, I pray like John Newton, you take that to your grave. Who The last thing on his dying bed, the last thing he said with his memory fading, he says, I remember though two things that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. We should anguish over our sin. That's part of the process. I think that's what God uses, isn't it? If you don't anguish, if you don't have at least some emotional peaks over when you wander away the most, something's wrong. Don't Sear the conscience, as one of the passages says that we've been reading as elders recently. Don't sear the conscience by turning away from that. Allow your heart to do what it's supposed to do. And especially this side of the cross. Second, though, as you look, conviction of the hands. Third, though. As you look, conviction of the hands at what Jesus did for you. 
lift up your hands in arms against the sin that you're continuing to do against God. Lift up your arms. Get into the fight. Not that you have to fight for yourself. Jesus has already done it. But that you get to join him if he is really yours. And let me just end by reading a passage from another another Puritan just before, just before John Newton entered the scene. This is what this one guy writes. He says, Sin never appears so odious as when we behold it in the red glass of Christ's suffering. Can we look upon sin as that which made Christ a curse and that made him forsaken of his father and and that made him live such a miserable life and that brought him to die such a shameful, painful, and cruel death and our hearts not rise against it? Shall our sins be grievous unto Christ and shall they not be odious unto us? Shall he die for our sins, and shall we not die to our sins? Did not he therefore suffer for sin, that we might cease from sin? If one should kill our father, would we hug and embrace him as our father? No, we would be revenged on him. Sin hath killed our Savior, and shall we not be revenged on it? Can a man look upon that snake that stung his dearly beloved spouse to death and preserve it alive, warm it at the fire, hug it in his bosom, and not rather stab it with a thousand wounds? Tis sin that hath stung our dear Jesus to death, that has crucified our Lord clouded his glory and shed his precious blood and oh how should this stir up our indignation against it ah how can a christian make much of those that killed his dearest lord he can how can he cherish those sins that betrayed Christ and apprehended Christ and bound Christ and condemned Christ and scourged Christ that violently drew him to the cross and there murdered him. It was neither Judas nor Pilate nor the Jews nor the soldiers that could have done our Lord the least hurt had not our sins like so many butchers and hangmen come into their assistance. Will we not then bear arms against them? I pray it would be so for you that a conviction of the heart stirred by God's word would turn into a, a conviction of the head, turn into a conviction of the heart, a mourning, a weeping, and then a rejoicing, and ultimately a conviction of the hands. I pray it would be so. Heavenly Father, I ask that a grace that your people did not know yet, a fulfillment of a grace your people did not know yet back in Ezra's day. I pray it would be ours. I pray it would be ever before us. I pray it would show us our sin like never before. Open us up 
I pray we would see it so clearly that we would not mind when others point it out. But that we would simply rejoice that it is one step closer to honoring you in the full. I pray that you, by your grace, would arrest our lives. That we might do great things for you because of the great things you have first done for us. In Jesus' name I pray. For joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K I S H Bible.org.